Welcome to the Forest Educator Podcast. I'm Ricardo Sierra. I'm here with Joe Flowers of Bushcraft Global, and I really appreciate you being here, Joe. Welcome to the Forest Educator Podcast. Hey, no problem. Thank you for having me on. I've been listening to your podcast for a little bit there with some people I know of, and I just wanted to check it out. And it was definitely really an honor to be asked to come on here. Yeah, it always goes both ways. That's how I always feel. And I'm really curious to hear about what Bushcraft Global is. Like in the wilderness field or nature education field, we have like wilderness education or wilderness skills. Then you have Bushcraft and then you have forest school educators and a whole spectrum. Tell us a little bit about Bushcraft Global and about what would you just say is is Bushcraft specifically, if you can? That's a, a great question. You know what? To start it out, I'm going to answer that last question. What is Bushcraft? And it's this catchphrase that I'm definitely a byproduct of loving that phrase, but it's something that kind of emerged in the early 90s. It's been around forever. Right. Australia always called it Bushcraft and stuff. But then the use of using knives and ray mirrors on TV and all this stuff too started to start this movement called bushcraft and trying to define it more or less, at least to me personally, bushcraft is the use of knowledge, tools, and equipment to have a more comfortable time outdoors, in most cases camping, but for living. And that has all these spectrums that that come into it. So bushcraft encapsulates knowing your biology, having a naturalist aspect, knowing, oh, okay, I need to build a basket. So tulip poplar, I know what animal or what uh, tree this looks like. And, oh, it's June and the sap's running, so I'm able to pull it off. And bushcraft also gives you a little bit of history from archaeological and experiential archaeology education all the way up to what we do nowadays because everybody likes to be challenged with knowledge of firecraft knowledge of tool craft all this stuff too so it takes all of that and puts it together it's become popular there's bushcraft tools bushcraft equipment and bushcraft camps especially for kids and and adults and i've helped teach some of those too and it's just a really cool catch-all for getting around using your hands to make your in your brain to make yourself more comfortable out in the woods. Yeah, it, it's interesting how much, like when I was studying wilderness survival skills, mm-hmm. most of what I was studying with Tom Brown was yeah. a lot about this sort of like a native approach, meaning like you probably are not going to have a knife, a blanket, mm-hmm. some string or anything. So how do you build that? And how do you work on building those skills from the ground up? And then I've often seen bushcraft as being something where you might start with a knife or you might start with a hundred yards of paracord or something, but, but there's so much you can do with just those resources. And all of it is, seems like it's tied to utilizing your resources and having fun and being creative and solving problems. And it's really a wonderful thing to, for anybody, really not just kids, but anyone to learn. Yeah. So you, you, when you're working with Bushcraft Global, what does that entail? Um, Uh, I guess with the whole world of Bushcraft, Mm -hmm. I'll I'll start off by, I got into it through Tom Brown's books, as you probably did too, but you you went there back in the OG days before the word Bushcraft was cool. That's right. Um, 
and that was like a really amazing time for survival skills and this stuff now. But I uh, was always into knives and stuff. So I started designing for knife companies. Mm -hmm. So I designed for Condor Tool and Knife, Tox Knives, who makes a Tom Brown tracker. That's right. Um, and I actually designed for them. So that's a U.S. a U.S. knife company I designed for. Artisan Cutlery, CJRB, and Work Tough. So I love knives and I love the outdoors. And, right. and where, what does that mean? That means bushcraft, honestly. Sure. And I have a zoology major and an entomology minor. I really love animals. I really love reptiles and amphibians, but getting a degree in that is not impossible. It's just much more rare than loving insects, which I also like. I have a degree in entomology and I liked all these bugs and, and animals and creepy crawlies coming together. I like using a knife. Where do you see that mostly come together? And that's the Amazon jungle. And so I've always had a crush on the Amazon jungle ever since I was a kid. And, and training was important, whether you get in the U.S. or anywhere. So I went to the guys who really know the Amazon jungle, Essie, who's also another knife company, Essie Knives. And I went down the jungle for the first time with them, loved it, got back to the jungle again. And through a bunch of circumstances, met a guy who also loves knives down there. And we started Bushcraft Global. So nice. Bushcraft Global is globally all around the, the world, but it right now it specializes in taking people to the Amazon jungle. We go to Peru, Brazil, and Colombia, all three countries right at the same time, and hang out with six different indigenous tribes where people have a bushcraft vacation. I, I don't do like training classes of, of how to, although I do go around the United States and teach that, teach adults, definitely teach kids classes. But the Bushcraft Global Jungle experience is, is just that. It's an experience. Some adults even call it like a, a kid's extreme or adult's extreme summer camp because you get to fish all day. We're making baskets. We're making pottery. We're making spears. We're going out and spear fishing. We're making bows, going out and bow fishing, making slingshots. Then the indigenous are sharing a lot of their skill sets with us while we're relaxed in the jungle in hammocks, but learning a whole lot of culture from people who, who do this stuff way more than we ever will. You right. know? And, and it's a Monday for them when the five-year-old knows how to use a machete better than me and things along that line. So that's like the first and foremost part of Bushcraft Global. And that's where like the use of knives and, and the background in biology all kind of come together to give somebody that type of experience as well. That's That sounds really cool. I, I know I've often thought about going down into the Amazon just from, I think there was a movie that I saw back probably in the early 80s called The Emerald Forest. Yeah. And it's all about this boy who gets captured by native people down there mm -hmm. and learns their ways. And it's got a lot of problems now, if you look back on it, but uh, it was just really interesting just because it gave a, a, like a snapshot of what that world might look like a little bit. And yeah. uh, it was really fascinating to me. That's honestly one of the, the things I think is the most fascinating. One of the tribes that we work with, they were first contacted in the uh, late 1970s, very early 1980s. And they're still very primitive. They're at a very cool transition where it's very slow because they're in, they're actually a Brazilian tribe, the Matisse tribe. You can see them, I don't know, on the front cover of National Geographic right. and, and stuff like that. And this one's from 2003. 
but they live around the natural reserve where all the um, indigenous that are uncontacted live. Right. Wow. Kind of like the, the border, the bodyguards, more or less. Sure. Uh, and because they're so far upriver from any development, they've stopped being so nomadic and now they're going into the agriculture state of their culture, but they're not having the problems that a lot of the more modern indigenous have. They are and they, and they are they are losing a lot of their culture within a generation because they're contacted or two generations, but they're still really cool teachers and, and demonstrators. But we also have more modern tribesmen down there too, like the Yukuna, the Huitoto, and a bunch of other different tribes that show you just what it's like to be living with their culture in the modern world too, and having that all together. So they're using trash for bushcraft and utilizing skill sets where you can give them any tool. And it's not the, it's not the bow, it's the archer where they're able to adapt to it. And it's inspiring because when you learn and hang out with them so much, you have a little bit more faith in, in what you can do with your hands and, and our human story that we have and what kind of human nature, um, what the human nature is able to do when it can have all this stuff to imagine, to make things. So like walking around there, there's basically 550 cord on the trees, wild edibles everywhere and animals everywhere. And the abundance shows you, you know, what you can do with your hands. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. So what kind of animals are you seeing down there? What, especially the, the Amazon natives is it like tapir or yeah um, um, you know, so we don't have and... we don't have tapir tapir right where we're at because they're endangered but they are like in the brazilian territory i haven't seen any tracks of them yet but i've seen tracks of plenty of other animals bushcraft global the jungle experience is like a big jungle experience that's 12 days but i also do like a lot of logistical work for um, people who want to go down there and travel and on the headquarter property where my best friend lives, five new frogs to science have been found. Oh. And that's just on the property where we stay for the headquarter spot where you have a bed and nice food and things. And they do kayaking and zip lines there, but it's still pretty primitive. But there is so many things just on the headquarters property. That's Tanamboca at this Tanamboca place that the first night I stayed there, I woke up in the morning and I was just completely blown away. I saw small possums the size of mice spiders like the bird eating tarantulas goliath spiders bigger than my hand just right out on the trail sloths mm. up in the trees certainly the one of the largest coral snakes marine coral snakes that that's out there and i saw it on the trail poison dart frogs trivitata these little three-lined frogs everywhere and all these really amazing animals that i've just saw in my life on national geographic and, and stuff right. i never thought i'd ever see in person and that yeah, was just so like, cool. that's before we go deep into the bush too. And they, they have probably a lot of different kinds of birds. The sounds and everything must be completely oh. different. Than, yeah, the sounds are incredible. I was thinking I'd try and learn how to mix music just to make, I don't know, music from the bird sounds. Because they have birds that sound like lasers being shot and, and birds that sound like they're crying and, and all of this stuff too. It's, it's a birder's paradise, but everything in the jungle lives by not getting seen, cryptic color is very important. So you have to see like the outlines of the toucans going by. And then you see the macaws. You always know when macaws are coming around because they just scream. Rah! But all these other ones, you have to be really quick with the binoculars to see. And man, I know one of the eeriest times I was out there was like maybe two years ago. And all of a sudden I hear an osprey 
And one of the, the Tikuna guide that we work with is one of the best birders in the region. And I like birds. I'm just not, not crazy about that as much as I am small insects and things. But um, I'm like, that's definitely an osprey. That sounds like an osprey. See, it's an osprey. And I couldn't believe that. We have stuff that I live in North Carolina, right near the New River. And we have ospreys all the time. And they migrate all the way down there. And so wow. I was able to see some familiar friends down there. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's, it's really a different world. And I know that a lot of people would maybe ask, oh, or do you have, do you have to get certain uh, immunizations to go? Do you have to watch out for certain areas because there are things that are dangerous? Like you said, maybe coral snakes or uh, yeah. other, you really need to know. It's not just something where you go, okay, I went from Vermont to New Hampshire and uh, fairly safe uh, yeah. where you go. And then all of a sudden you're down there and there's just things that if you don't, things that you don't know can hurt you because you just have no idea what you're up against. Yeah. That's one of the cool parts about um, bushcraft is depending on what you do, you're able to go get um, all these certifications and things everywhere. So I got a wilderness first responder certification from the same guys. I went to the jungle with the first time Essie and I got to learn how to work that. But now I've incorporated having a medic on our trip every time when possible. But, and everybody starts to think, oh man, that must mean the jungle is super dangerous. It's a green hell and it's all that. Honestly, the most dangerous part about the jungle is people don't want to get on the plane after they've spent days down there. And it it sounds, oh, everybody laughs, but I've had to like really make sure that people got on and stuff too. But that headquarters, Tanaboka, at least for us bringing people down to the jungle, that's a more tame area. And yeah, we have all the creepy crawlies everywhere, but it's a big open spread out trail. And we show you, hey, watch out for black palm thorns or don't touch this uh, tarantula. And, and guys, when you're looking up, be careful before you do that. And we explain it more in a quick setting or in a, a uh, more pronounced and elaborate setting where we're right near cars and stuff too, if we have to. But there's venomous snakes and animals on the property, but and that's just on the property before we go out deep into the jungle. But everything is shy out there. Nothing right. wants to be messed with. And, and you, you realize everything's pretty timid. With that being said, we try to bring anti-venom on every trip just in case. And we try and train even some of the tribesmen. Uh, we help them with snake education and, and stuff like that, too. So there is an aspect of danger, but we try very hard because it's a, a survival adventure thing to make sure that everybody feels safe and in, in, in the environment where they, Hey, no matter what, if somebody gets a machete cut, we have it um, covered or right. we have something uh, uh, along that line. But with, with that aspect, it's just like going to New York. You learn to watch mm. out for the white or the yellow Cape Buffalo going across the streets like crazy. And you, you learn all of that by being thrown into it. You don't take a course where you learn, maybe you do take a course where you learn right. before the street and stuff but because you were thrown into that situation you're able to learn a lot more and it makes it pretty safe out there and when people start to think it's after a few days they realize it's really a green heaven and everything's very lush and there's just stuff everywhere and there's so much life everywhere out there that you start to feel a little bit more at home and i think maybe with me i felt like there would be a whole in my heart, if I didn't go to the jungle every single year. And so I made this business out of it. So my wife would let me go. 
and stuff too. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So what kind of people go on these trips with you? They're for adults. These tell me a little bit about who, who well, shows up and what their experience is like. Yeah, we've actually had some older kids on it, like 14, 15 stuff with their parents. And that was good. And we have people that are adventurous from all different backgrounds. We have a, for instance, there's one guy who's come, there's a lot of repeat guys that just seem to happen. And now we're going to be having multiple trips, but there's a guy who comes from Serbia who designs custom art for pins and is well known throughout Serbia. There's another guy who's a knife maker down from the Southeast that, that comes and tests out his knife, his knives. There's people from YouTube who want to get stream videos or something along that line. Then there's just regular people who just want a, a change and adventure and that really like the outdoors. Uh, other survival instructors will come to all sorts of different people from all over. A lot of times it's from the knife world because that's the world where I dwell in and work in. So if there's any like contract or context through there, that comes up. But we have had anybody, everybody from naked and afraid to a Walmart representative come on the trips. Wow. That's so cool. we really made it for everybody. Yeah. And, and it sort of sounds like it's just a really wonderful experience. So it gets them on board and having a great time. Now, do you spend a lot of time on the water? as well. Are you canoeing out to these places or boating out to those, some of those areas that you go to? Yeah. So when on the bushcraft global jungle experiences, it can go anywhere from three to five hours on a boat on the Amazon into the, into some of the uh, other headwaters of the Yabari and all these other rivers. And then what we've tried to do recently is camp next to lakes where we're able to get a lot of fish. And if we can, in between two lakes or a lake and a river, so you can get a change in the different type of fishing, but there's a lot of fish, fishing specific, if you feel like it, stuff that goes on. So we'll have two dugouts or three dugouts or two dugouts in a kayak and people are able to go out there and, and fish for peacock bass during the daytime with modern tackle. And then at night we'll go after, we'll go after caiman or either with our hands to catch them and make sure that they stay alive. Or just very rarely, if the indigenous want to eat one, we'll talk and see how it is. Because they're allowed to. But I love cave and I want to give them a kiss and throw them back in the water. So right. it's normally between me and the indigenous. But then go spear fishing because you're able to hit a lot of topwater fish at night with spears. And do a lot of stuff that way. We'll even put out gill nets and learn a lot about gill net culture. And, and different types of more primitive fishing mm -hmm. traps and things along that line. So there is a lot of water uh, a lot of water in the latest aspects of it. There right. is some trips where we do hiking. There's uh, trips where I put together where like father and sons will do like a kayak trip up into the region and then have to hike out and hike a certain way. And we get the kayaks out a, a different way. So it just changes with um, each person that does it down there too. Yeah. It's always, it's interesting when I think of like the Amazon jungle, most of the movies that I see down there are always usually somebody who's an explorer and they're like after some gold or they're after yeah. like, or they're a researcher and they're after some kind of cancer cure or something. And then there's always somebody, obviously there's drama, right? So there, there's like somebody chasing them and everything else. But most of the time, I know from my experience in nature, most of the time, it's just like looking for some food, hanging out, really enjoying how beautiful our surroundings are. And it must be really wonderful to see native people who are indigenous to that region just living their lives. They're not searching for lost Spanish gold or some other yeah. mystery or something. But it's really cool to see like the children, how they've grown up with this as part of their culture too. It really, 
blows my mind when a little two-year-old's playing with a dead monkey around the campsite yep. and stuff that the Matisse kid who and it's it's Barbie doll and and stuff and you're just like what what is going on and that's just a day in the life of of their culture and it really shows you the difference between you know us here and people in other places and what they value and and what they deal with to just have a life to to get through a day of sweltering amazon heat or something like that yeah i was going to mention that how what is it is it because it's near the equator it must be like pretty much hot all the time or there is there a rainy season or is yeah, the there's all the rainy and, and rainier season, but no, and there's a very uh, a high water season where all the water comes up and that's where all the, like in the, at least in the region where I work, which is this place called Tri-Corners of Peru, Brazil and Colombia. Um, there's a high water time where uh, the whole port gets really full in the town of Leticia and they're up on stilts and stuff and, and getting by with that. But we go during the lower season, so there aren't so bad of mosquitoes. But the heat last time, it was really hot. And I was looking on CNN the other day. It's record temperatures down there. Hottest it's oh. been. So that was, I'm used to hot, but like 98 degrees in the daytime. So we're underneath the canopy. We even went to a creek where it's really cold and made that like a place where we could douse off and things too. But you always have like water next to you to, to jump into. And that's even on my, like the canoe trips where I've led for Blue Ridge Discovery Center. Back in the day, I used to do stuff when I have time for canoe trips with kids um, there and, and getting people to realize that you're like one with the water and you can just use it all the time instead of, oh, man, we get to the border of this thing and that's water. That's no man's zone. You can't jump into there. You know, now they just stay life aquatic half the time when they're jumping off the, the canoe all day long, just wet going down the river and really enjoying that. And I see a lot of correlation between that and how I live down there when i'm camping and stuff oh we're hot let's go into the lake or go to the river the prana it's all they don't really bite much or anything like that and you don't get any of these nefarious catfish going up your various orifices and things so you can swim as much as you want out there as well wow that's cool that's really cool yeah there's always these what do they call it the legends or the urban legends or or amazon myths probably that people maybe are expecting so I, you know, I wonder if people are disappointed that it's not more dangerous. No, because there there is a level of holy crap. There there is that. And the most dangerous thing I don't like down there, and it happens every once in a while, are fast storms that come through and are blowing the canopy around. And that's honestly one of the most dangerous things I think out there for a common occurrence because everything up in the canopy is all interlaced and grown in this huge huge um, biodiverse community up in the top of the canopy. So the vines are reaching through all of the trees and there's not much there's not much as far as nutrients in the soil underneath so the trees don't have a very deep root system right right so they're easily toppled over because they have this interwoven net of vines it takes down like way more trees than what you'd think in the u.s and those widow makers are something that you have to be careful of so right that's and i've seen trees fall in the aftermath of it while we're out there and just being like wow this really does take out a a whole part of the jungle and they're really great areas to get solar power. But uh, yeah, it's really interesting when that happens too, but that's one of the most dangerous things. But then there's this more myth aspect. For instance, there is this thing called the Cordopita, which is if you guys can imagine a Bigfoot with his legs shoom, flipped over backwards and he's making footprints and it looks like he's running away. No, the Cordopita is coming to get you. Right. And that's a big myth that a lot of different 
a lot of different tribes have down there. We saw one of the first dances of the Matisse of the Cordopita down there, I think last year. And it was one of the ones that they said they could actually show now. I believe getting translations always a little bit loose. But this Cordopita, this back foot, backwards Bigfoot, can get you lost in the jungle, can get you very lost to the point where some tribes even do a, a tobacco offering for the Cordopita. But what the most interesting thing for me as far as education and, and understanding using the forest to, to help you and, and in the bushcraft sense is they make these little elaborate traps out of different palms, specific palms. So they have to have this learned cultural heritage of learning these different plants. And they make traps with a knife or with a machete for the cordopedia. And there are these little puzzle pieces of things like leaves interwoven without a, a terminal front and back. So you can't figure out how they make it. And frames like those puzzle frames that go together at a cracker barrel or something. Right. Right, the, right, where it becomes like one solid piece, but then it comes up underneath like a puzzle, and add a palm. They make it out of specific palm with a knife, and you leave it on the trail, and then the quarter Peter comes up and looks at the trap, and doesn't know what it is, and 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 gets lost looking at that, and then you're able to get home. What that teaches to me, at least, is that stop acronym: stop, think, observe, plan. Where you stop for a while, you think about the situation you're in. And um, then you're able to get out of that situation, whether it being lost in jungle or hugging a tree or something like that, teaches right. you to stay put so you can get your brain about you. Yeah, that's cool. That's a cool, it's a cool myth to think of or the, or a story or a, a yeah. thing. It's pretty sweet. And it's, I really want to be able to teach it in the U.S. I just got to get the right supply of plants and things like that, too. There's a lot of skills that I've taken down there that I've taught around here in the United States, too. At a, for instance, at a big event called Georgia Bushcraft, I do a, right. a bug hunt and for the kids. And I also am going to be doing a trash craft class this year, which is basically making crafts out of trash for the outdoors and just for use and I learned down there from my uh, business partner how to do trash bag cordage. And of course, some guy found out about it and put it all over the internet as they do. But it shows you how to make cordage out of grocery bags or different types of objects around you. And that's really fun to teach from kids all the way up to adults. And that's just one of um, a million different things that, that I learned down there that are just really cool to have as, as part of something to keep a tradition on. But there are also unique skill right. sets that people can learn. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know we do have so much that we throw away culturally, both here and in other countries too. And it's so interesting what we throw away, other people can really make do with and find a good source or a good reason for that to keep it and make tools or whatever. So it's really, it's a really, it's a, just a different consciousness, right? Like when you don't have the ability to like, jump in a car and drive to Target and then spend $40 every Saturday or something on things you don't need necessarily. It's a whole different thing when you're actually in the bush and trying to figure out how to solve a problem or make things better. Yeah. You know what? One of the most interesting things about that observation is like with the Matisse tribe, I see a change based on the resources that they can get within a year. So this, this material on this bracelet, the one I'm wearing on my, mm -hmm. on my arm, it's like one of these wide watch band bracelets, if you guys can imagine, but they normally made it out of Chambira. 
So it was this darker colored material made out of a plant fiber, Astrocarium chambira, which is a really widespread known fiber down there that, that's used a lot for cordage and for hammocks and for jewelry and all sorts of stuff too. And I was there one year when the Matisse would put some wares that they've had from their tribe out on the trading table, and it was all made from cotton. Wow. And I was just like, wow. And then all pink and blue colored and stuff. And I asked like the one guy who was there, is this happening right now? Like this whole change? And like, yeah. And I was like, okay, just tell them that the, the people who come on my trip really like the Chambira more than the cotton. And it wasn't made up. They did buy some cotton, but they liked the authentic Amazon stuff. Sure. And so by going next trip, they all had Chambira again and we're back to it. So that was nice. That's a resource and that cost them money maybe. Or they were able to get that cordage from somewhere and it was, hey, now they don't have to go to the jungle and make it. It's one less step and that's happening with them. And it's very reflective of us and our knowledge that we learned from or lost. Gosh knows we're doing this on Zoom, you know, on the internet post COVID and having, um, you know, th- uh, talks about this and you're able to share it. Thank God, because we have the internet. And um, but who knows what the heck we've lost, you know, before sure. that. Good gosh. Yeah, I remember like when I was learning a lot of my skills as a kid before I met Tom Brown or anything. Yeah. I was really into trapping. I liked the idea of the trappers because I had read stories about the mountain men and how they trapped beaver. And so I always had this image of, oh, it'd be cool to learn how to do trapping. And I remember seeing a book in the back of a magazine, like one of those Field and Stream or Fish Game magazine. And in the very back, there would be like an old style trapper's guide that they would have. And they would just go, hey, get this guide. It tells you all the stuff that the old trappers did. Yeah. I remember putting out, I don't know, I sent $4 plus postage and a little envelope. And I thought, okay, I'm going to get the secrets. And I did that. And I had to wait, I don't know, six weeks or whatever. Trapping season was over by the time I got it. (laughs) I get this little booklet. and And so I check it out. And there's these like diagrams there. And one of them was how to make a Martin trap, like a pine Martin. Yeah. Yeah. And and my first question was, what the heck's a pine Martin? Because I was, I was like maybe 12 years old. So Uh I was like, what is that? Because I've never even heard of that. And then it just had a picture of a tree with a pole on it and leaning up against it. And then there was this little, huh? With the loops on it? Yeah, there was like a little loop on it. And then there was like a like a scribbled little thing that just and, and an arrow that said bait. <laughs> and underneath it said figure one. And I looked at that and I thought, what in the world is this? What is bait? What are they using? How did they get it? <laughs> How do they attach it to a pole up on a tree? And then what's that loop? And how do you get that loop to stay there? And what's it made out of? I had a hundred questions, but I remembered after I read it, I looked at it and went, this book was written in like 1908. Mm -hmm. So to a person in 1908, who was a trapper, they already knew all that stuff. Like they wouldn't, if I, you wouldn't, if I just said, Hey, how do you send a text to someone? You wouldn't need to tell them how to do it now because everybody knows how to text. So you would just go send a text to so-and-so for them. They didn't, they, they already knew how to set a snare you're using wire or if you didn't use wire you've got little sticks put up to hold the loop open or whatever and they knew what kind of bait that would be whatever that is maybe it's a squirrel maybe it's something else but i just found that it was like 
it was really annoying as a kid because I was just like, okay, this is useless. Yeah. I just like, threw it across the room. Great. <laughs> I just lost my $5. I could have bought comic books or something with that. But it was really interesting because we had lost that information that those people didn't think to put in because no one needed to. It's something that I believe I was listening to one of your la last podcast post Tom Brown at the beginning of the internet. That's when people started to realize, at least for me, I think that's when people started to realize, oh, all of these different survival schools everywhere and all that. There's little pieces here and there that can work. But good gosh, there's a whole level of stuff that even they haven't taught in things along that line. And right. it's, I think the Internet has really exposed us to how much we've, we've lost that way. I know I probably wouldn't be able to go hang out with the tribesmen in the middle of um, the Amazon today without the Internet. I definitely couldn't do it sure. in the back of with an ad in the back of Boy's Life or something like no, that. No, exactly. Yeah, it was very different. Trying to make a business run 20 years ago was completely different. Yeah. Uh, it was so much word of mouth and, you know, just being in the right place at the right time and getting lucky in a lot of ways. Right. Now there's so many places where everybody, all the professionals are hanging out and doing stuff to that. It's really amazing to see how much more everything's expanding. Maybe that's why that's how bushcraft became a catch-all phrase because the internet and everything getting bigger and people getting better at it. Yeah. It's interesting. Like I know from like, because I've been doing this a really long time, I've had a pretty interesting perspective because I've seen it grow. Yeah. That's incredible to me. Yeah. And it's interesting because I, like, I'll be honest, like I don't scour YouTube for yeah. survival videos. Not that I haven't watched a few, but generally I just, I'm like, I got other things I'm doing. But the thing that's interesting is that it seems like you'll have somebody who will get on there and they'll have one or two things that they do that are really good and new. Mm -hmm. And then people that are trying to create content will all jump on that, see it, and then they'll start doing the same thing. You know, oh, yeah. like, oh, look at our thing. Look at what I made. You know, not that they're stealing it, but that they're like just ripples outward. Yeah, it's like a trend. And, or something. Yeah. And, and there was a lot of people at the time who were in the early days would get really bent out of shape because they would just be like, hey, that was my thing. And I worked really hard for that. And so I want credit and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know if we're past that now or whether people are still hurt by those things. But I always just would laugh at them and say, why are you putting it on the internet? If you don't want it to, if you don't want it to get out there, it's going to get out there. Yeah. But at the same time was interesting because a lot of my friends would say, if I put it all on the internet, then no one will take classes because we're giving it away for free. And I would just go, do you really think somebody, how many people do you think can actually do a Bodro fire based on what they saw? Yeah. On, on YouTube. Video? <laughs> yeah. And man, it's way more complicated than that. And half the time, the videos are, they're not that good, at least in the early days, they, they were poor quality. And oh yeah, you'd hear this wind I mean, you know, guys, <laughs> and the winds blowing and all this stuff. So it was really interesting to watch these, um, the evolution of that field. And now I, I'm not hundred percent sure where it is, but you might, you would probably know more than I do, but it's so interesting to see how, how we responded to the information age and the fact that we have access and that we have people who can share these things. So yeah, it's, it's great. It's cool now because everything, this is just my opinion, internet listeners, but like for the first 10 years, everybody's like doing friction fire. Like it's for instance, friction fire, like it's a magic trick. 
And people like with Steve Watts, my main mentor who passed away would say without context, it's just arts and crafts. But now you're starting to see people go back to, hey, we're with Dave Halliday, like for instance, one of the original guys to do bow drills in the US and stuff. And so they're able to go back and find out now where that next step is to get even better, different knowledge instead of just being able to make a bow, uh, a hand drill or bow drill for the heck of it. And I think that's at least a, a new thing that, that I think is helping us, especially in education too. We're realizing, okay, hey, just showing a, a student how to make one and then getting a fire is is one thing, but how to recognize cedar or uh, willow or some bass or things like that and to really get their context going to understand why do they know that. It's part of our human story. Wouldn't be here today with the internet without fire. Sure. Interest. I think that's at least one aspect now to where the aha moment is gone. Now it's all right. Now let's get into the skill set of where this came from and the knowledge behind it. And maybe that's one thing education wise that uh, I, I really um, enjoy. For instance, like I was at the um, Bushcraft Symposium in England in 2022. And there were a lot of like old school guys who have been teaching brain tanning and, and doing stuff for, or doing replicas for different, different media productions and things along that line. Sure, sure. Now in contact with the guys who were now like really starting to understand what the cool parts and different channels and different rivers and stuff. There is a knowledge that happens with just the word bushcraft and the stuff underneath it. And um, it's amazing because you get guys from like, that have been around since the 60s all the way to new people who are on YouTube just barely learning what a knife grind is or something along that line. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of knowledge and I always think of like how you know how you can stack that knowledge so that mm-hmm. you no know, it's not just oh I want to learn how to make fire so I'm going to use a bow drill and like you said crank that out okay I made fire now I'm done but without really knowing like the trees and how to make tinder and how to weave the cordage for the string. If you don't have that, how do you use rocks to cut their, cut your notch and all the different elements there. It's really, there's just like an incredible stack of skills that kind of like point to a level of mastery yeah. for, for fire making or for building a shelter or for buckskin or, whatever it is, bows and arrows, like any of those things, there's that, it's a direct conflict with like our instant gratification. Yeah. Right. That's the hard part. That instant gratification is hard. As an educator, you'll be like, oh, can you teach bow drill the first part of the morning and then knots the second part uh, in the afternoon? Like you want to cover friction fire in three hours? It's just right. show how to do it with a whole bunch of tools, sets already made and let them go at it versus getting a real mastery of the skill because that instant gratification right. that's understandable especially yeah. when you're looking for clients to, to pay you to teach bushcraft or something and that's understandable how they'd want to have all that together so sometimes it's cool you learn a lot more when you have to teach something and then i'll learn okay maybe instead of a bow drill they'll do spark based fire making sure. and that way they can use everything from a broken lighter to a piece of char cloth and, and a fire steel they're, they're able to get that aspect and i think that's cool now because people can adjust because now people wouldn't know back in excuse me if i'm wrong but like in the 90s people didn't really know the spark the metal match the ferocium rod for instance the spark that has all this 
fun sciencey metal in it that makes a huge spark. That wasn't on every shelf in every Walmart and every pro shop. And now there's six different fire starters because everybody wants to learn how to do spark based fire making and stuff. Right. It's cool to see that insurgents too, because they'd be like, oh man, as an educator, I can just wake up in the morning and bring a whole bunch of material for them to set fire with. And I'm still able to teach them firecraft, but I don't have to bang out 12 bow drill sets for this class today. And they're all getting all glazed over because they don't put enough pressure on it and everything. Now they're all shiny and you have to like- Yeah, and then the students get frustrated and they're- Sure. Uh, it's not, I'm not complaining about teaching bow drill or something no, like that, no. but- it's, it's funny because people just want to go, oh, I want to learn Bodro in two hours. And that's not what I think would help them the most right away. It's get them started in spark-based fire making. Sure. And, and see if they get, if they catch the spark, you can teach them how to do a Bodro next, in next class. I mean, yeah, and that's true. And that's where, like, it's good for people to get a win in, a, in the beginning so that they just get the sense of, I can do this. And if you do a spark-based thing, you still have to blow that tinder into flame. You still have to have a teepee fire set up. You have to do other things. So the skill is still, it's still 100% valid. I teach children and sometimes I'm with like 12-year-olds and there's four or five students who've never lit a match. Yes. They've never lit a match before. So I'm yeah, I, I really don't need to do hand drill or something like that. That's much more difficult when they have never even held a match, lit it, and then used it. A lot of times they'll light it and then they immediately drop it. They're yeah. Just like, oh no, I'm so scared. Boom. And they just drop it into their fire structure because they're so afraid of being burned. Yeah. yeah. Which is understandable because they've never done it before. There's just every time, every few years, it feels like we have to take a step back and say, hey, a lot of these students have never done this before. So yeah. they've never even really been outside or been off trail or any of that. And so they're immediately in a completely different comfort zone. So I can imagine people feel that way a little bit when they go to the Amazon and they're like, okay. And you're like, hey, by the way, that frog by your elbow is a poison arrow frog. Don't No, that's one. fine. You can pick that frog up. Real quick before I forget, if you guys are ever teaching primitive skills and need a good supply of uh, Tinder, that these guys don't pay me for any of this, but everybody I tell all the, I've learned this from environmental instructors and wanted to pass it on. Grannystore.com sells this stuff called oakum. It's made out of like oak, but they used to use it in like the orifices of, of boats to fill them with oil and without, but this stuff catches a spark immediately. It's great from spark-based fire making to bow drill fires and stuff. And I have just a big bag out in my, out in my garage and I have it ready to go for when I need to teach classes from adults to kids everywhere. You can even weave it and make it in the cordage too, but it's called nice. Oakum. Oakum. Okay. And it's, it's great stuff, but yeah, uh, check that out. I've even brought that down the jungle because we have a hundred percent humidity down there and I'll right. take every chance I can get the Matisse. They, everybody's like, okay. They're going to be doing fire out there. And they do, they bring their big lighter with them in their blowgun kit. And the big lighter is a hand drill and a fireboard that they pre-dried out in the sun. So they bring that in their kit wrapped up in a leaf to make sure that they have a way to do a friction fire. Man, the friction fire, when they do it, it's a hand drill. So for listeners, that's just putting a, uh, um, a small pencil size or larger stick in between your hands and going back and forth onto a fireboard and generating enough friction and pressure to make a coal. And they do that down there, but the, the darn bow drill the spindle or the hand drill the spindle is only six to eight inches long 
And oh. in a North American hand drill, I think of one like being like two feet long or something along that line. And so they all get in a circle and everybody works together to get this going on a, a piece of cotton looking stuff called um, or capo tree. And it's the same stuff that they use for their blowgun uh, darts to, to put a plunger in there. And gosh, when they do it in the 100% humidity, they violate all those rules that you were hearing about, like from all of the YouTubers and books from back in the day. They don't read any of that crap. They just go crazy their way, which they've had for a thousand years. And it's mesmerizing watching them do that. Wow. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, that's it's really different. Like I, I used to travel a lot and I would go to someplace like New Mexico, Arizona, yeah. and I would teach fire making. And when it's so dry there, you could pretty much get a hand drill fire in in literally a matter of seconds because they're just such low humidity. But then you come to the Northeast or like North Carolina or something, and it's yeah. just everything is just moist all the time. And yeah, even the mullen and stuff, I have to pre-dry out in my car hood or right. in my car windshield just to get it to go. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Because it, it just it'll just take too long for you to dry it out right on your own. Yeah. But if you have a team of people, you can do it, which is nice. So yeah, you really it's really a fascinating process of how these skills sometimes people think of it as, oh, I need to learn all this so that I can survive, even though everyone else is. But we really don't want to survive without everybody else because otherwise you're just out there lonely. So it's right. nice to have kids around and other people around to gather firewood or all team up on making a fire or whatever it is. Steve Watts, um, yeah. about him uh, before he passed away, I believe in 2016 in October, but he used to work for the Shield Museum of Natural Science, but he was also in a consultant for the movie Castaway. He was talking with the director both him, David Halliday, and David Westcott, those guys are out in the Utah area, all fantastic primitive skills practitioners. But Steve was the one I hung out with the most. He came up with an old volleyball or soccer ball to the director while they were talking about things that he could do. And he'd be like, survival of the mind's important. He's going to be lonely out there. He's going to need a friend. And of course, he stuffed this ball full of seaweed and trash and gosh knows what and made a very primitive crayon drawing of Wilson. And they took that yeah. idea and put it in Castaway. And yeah, it was yeah. for, for that aspect. It can get lonely when you're out there. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah, that that's cool. That movie is unbelievably iconic for mm -hmm. a lot of reasons, especially uh, because a lot of the uh, skills were really authentic. I can't tell you how many times I've seen a, a show where somebody goes, we need a fire. And then they take someone's hair and cut it. And they're like, this will <laughs> make a fire. And you, then they spin a stick for a second and then a fire flames come up or something and i just think you guys seriously like you couldn't take 10 seconds to google does hair make a good fire well, even in the primitive skills setting some guys will nitpick that too because there's a part where tom hanks and even those survival guys have power of power of hollywood but tom right. hanks is just doing the plow which i don't know why they would do a fire plow as like his yeah. thing because i don't think i've ever done one successfully yet but, and then he just glows a little bit and the whole thing catches on fire instead of sure. coal on. So there is that Hollywood aspect that, yeah. No, totally. Yeah. And they, they also probably can't justify showing like a, a half hour of him making a fire out of the yeah. yeah. It's interesting too, because I, I've done fire plow here in the, up in North, up here in this area, but you really have to dry, like you said, you have to dry it out on your dashboard in your car or something. But if you're in like Arizona or Nevada or California or New Mexico or something, 
fire plow is awesome, especially with uh, roots. I always find like cottonwood roots. By yeah. The it's like a really consistent type of, uh, of, of type of wood. But yeah, it's pretty cool. This is this has been really fun. Like talking to you. How do people get a hold of you? Oh, sure. I'll have like uh, your info in show in the show notes. But it's fun to just hear what your preference is. Sure, Instagram is probably the best way. But I'm on Facebook, uh, bushcraftglobal.com. Yes, I will update the website soon. I've been out in the bush too much. So Joe Flowers Bushcraft Global on Instagram. If you put the word Bushcraft Global on YouTube, Instagram, or all the socially stuff, you'll get it. So that's it. I teach in the U.S. coming up at Georgia Bushcraft. And you can find out about my knife designs through Condor Tool and Knife, Tops Knives, Artisan Cutlery, or honestly, if you just Google Joe Flowers Knife, you'll find stuff. And I've got stuff on my webpage too. But that's all for designing and things like that too. So if you guys are interested in coming to the Amazon jungle, or need logistics or ideas for other adventures around the the US or the world, message me and let me know. And I can, if I don't, if I don't do it myself, I can send it to the next person who does. Yeah, that's awesome. It's been really wonderful talking to you. I'm super excited about you taking those trips down there. It sounds like it's a lot of fun. And come on uh, down sometime. You'll have a lot of fun. Right on. I'd love to. And I'll I'll just give you a plug too. The condor knives. I started selling those to, for some of my summer camp programs. And those, those are awesome knives. I really love those. Yeah, there's one that I have a huge crush on called the Pterosaur. I designed it. Okay, yeah, it's that too. But I have a whole roll of them as my camp knives for all my classes. And man, when you give that to a bunch of 14-year-old Boy Scouts and it can handle that, holy yeah. cow, those are some hardcore knives. So Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, fun knives are, guys, are a lot of fun. As um, environmental educators, if you ever need any ideas for bushcraft classes, I can give you quite a few if you guys just message me on the side through all of those things too. Everything from classes where you're not allowed to use knives. Oh my gosh, somebody wants 2,000 knives. That's shuddering to me. But teaching classes to get around that problem too, if you're in a school setting and things like that, just message me. And if I don't, once again, if I don't know uh, the right answer, I can point you in the right direction. Awesome. That sounds really great. Thanks a lot. It's been really a fun time just talking to you and you've really expanded my view of what the Amazon is like and <laughs> it's been great to share stories. Excellent. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. All right. Thanks for listening to today's episode and for all the things that you do to help build a world that is connected to nature. You can get access to the bonus episodes my forest educator nature journals and curriculum, as well as other useful content by subscribing to my Patreon page where you can support us at any level. You can find the link in the show notes for that and my website and social media as well. And I will see you outside.